Hello, everyone. Thanks for giving us your time today. I'm Ian Hamilton, and this is VR Download. I'm joined here today by David Heaney from Northern Ireland, who has just come back from his secret project. Very, very, very good to see you, David Heaney. It feels like forever. Why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to? Yeah, it's really good to be back. If you don't read our website, you won't know what I'm up to. But if you do, you definitely will. So I spent the last few months completely rebuilding Upload VR's website from the ground up, and we focused on a much better reader experience, faster loading, a cleaner design, and also we fixed a lot of things behind the scenes so that we can write our articles faster with less technical issues in the way. We've also introduced Upload VR membership, which lets you support us directly instead of viewing the programmatic ads and gives you the ability to give your take in, below the article in a way that's not like a separate comment section differently styled in a little white box. It's a full first class take with the same font size and prominence that our article itself is below. So we'd really appreciate if you support us directly and become an Upload VR member. But if not, our website will continue to be free and supported by programmatic ads. Yeah, huge change for us there. And it's really meaningful to me personally when I see new members joining us and supporting us. I've put this out elsewhere, but I really do feel like direct support of journalism is the best way to to sort of get what you want rather than having people guided by other motivations like clicks and things like that. You know, we have always worked very hard to be aware of pursuing our interests relative to what the analytics are telling us. Hopefully this moment allows us to, you know, not pay attention to the analytics so much and just pursue what interests us a lot more. And I've been a big admirer of all the journalism organizations out there, all the individuals who are out there on Patreon and other places getting direct support for their work. So yeah, big moment for us. And thank you so much for doing it. You don't see it as readers out there, but he completely redid the back end and it's the cleanest writing experience that I've ever had in, in, oh gosh, decades now of journalism, right? I'm, I'm, I've been doing this a long time. I've been through CMSs that were built for newspaper organizations that were the, the most nightmarish things you could possibly imagine having to port information to multiple places. And uh, it, it's just amazing on the back end to put out our thoughts. And the, the very first thing that I put into that new website was one of the things we'll get into today. Are we ready to get into our news? Yeah, we definitely are. And like you said, it isn't just a redesign. What we did was an entire kind of rebuild from scratch. So yeah, we're really, really excited about the future and we can't wait to keep bringing you articles. I'm excited myself to be able to very soon get back to writing. I'm just kind of fixing a few of the expected launch week bugs, but that's nearly over. And then I can get back to focusing on the writing. And obviously I'm already back here on this show. It, it hasn't actually been that long. It's only been three weeks according to my last count, but it does feel like a very <laughs> long time. I'm excited to be back here. It's great to talk about the news here. Well, it's weird because I've, I've traveled two twice since since I think we were last together. And it's it feels like after being through three years of COVID sort of pandemic stuff, to do that much travel in such a sm small amount of time, it feels like, uh, like a time warp situation. It reminds me of the time before when VR news was happening all the time and you had to go to a bunch of conferences. Yeah, some great comments here just supporting us. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone who supports us on YouTube as well. One of the things that's great about having Heaney back, his focus on content production is we're going to have more cool things to discuss that are like from his specific voice 
his specific set of analysis back in the studio in the coming weeks. And one of the things that we've been talking about is trying to improve the overall production quality here. I think there's a lot we can do with our viewers out there to move along this show in different ways. But Pico 4, U.S. launch, reportedly halted to do a TikTok hearing. What is going on here, Heaney? Yeah, so Pico seemed to be hinting at something big happening back at GDC. And, you know, they, they gave a date of a Wednesday, but it came along to that date and absolutely nothing was announced, at least nothing that I'm aware of. And obviously people were wondering what's happened here. So Pico 4, if you're not aware, it's it's really the first true competitor to Quest 2. It's very similar in that it's powered by the same processor. It's je- it's the same kind of device, a standalone headset with two hand controllers that uses the Snapdragon XR2 chip. But it actually has a lot of superior hardware like pancake lenses and higher resolution screens and independently adjustable IPD. And it's a lot smaller and lighter. It feels in many ways like, you know, a Quest 2 Slim, but it's only available in certain Asian countries and Europe. It's not sold in North America. So this hint comes in and then it's reported that the reason that this didn't happen, that this headset did not come to the US on that date and may not for the foreseeable future, is all of this uh, US regulatory and congressional scrutiny around TikTok. So if you're not aware, ByteDance, the Chinese tech giant, is the company that owns TikTok and Pico. Well, it doesn't own TikTok, it's behind TikTok. It is, TikTok is one of their products, but one of its subsidiaries is Pico. It purchased Pico, uh, acquired Pico in 2021. And before that, Pico was you know just a leading independent standalone headset maker. A lot of people aren't aware, Pico actually shipped a standalone headset before Meta. They had the Pico Goblin out there uh, a year before, a year or two before Oculus Go. So they have been around for a long time. They are now trying very hard to compete with Quest 2 in those markets. But, you know, this scrutiny around TikTok where U.S. politicians are trying to make sure that it doesn't send data back to the Chinese government or that the Chinese government doesn't have an influence in the algorithm so that they can shape cultural discussion. Uh, that's something that is obviously led uh, by Dance to not launch what is essentially a device with four, sorry, five cameras and two microphones. In the same time, I don't think that would be a great look for them if a congressman sort of or a senator, I'm not sure which it is, pulls out a Pico 4 and points <laughs> to the five cameras, shows the color pass through and says, okay, so where's that data going? It's obviously, you know, VR is seemingly quite important for ByteDance, but I don't think it's important enough to compromise the possibility of making sure that TikTok stays in the US market. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I do feel like I should get some credit. I think there's an audio transcript where I raised this possibility on our show sometime in the past. And it seemed kind of unlikely was the, like the consensus, I think, at the time. And it, it's still like, you know, it hasn't happened, right? So it still seems unlikely to a certain extent. But it is sort of an active concern that's not going away. And um, I do like your your vivid imagery there of exactly, you know, the photo that would be on the front of uh, newspapers everywhere would be this uh, this VR headset in an, in an active hearing. Are we ready to move on to the next subject? Do you see any comments you want to address right now? Well, the last thing I point out is about the prospect of it never happening. That's kind of what we already have in the smartphone market. So uh, Huawei and Xiaomi phones are actually very popular in Europe. And there are many countries in Europe where those are sold by carriers all over Europe, uh, those Huawei and Xiaomi phones. And the same phones are actually banned in the US. They're, you know, you can import them in certain scenarios, but they don't have the correct US frequency band, so they won't work fully. And that may just be a situation that continues in the future where 
you know, Europe is not exactly anything close to an ally of China, but they're at least much more tolerant of Chinese products than the US seems. The US in the current political climate and for the seeable future may just want to keep these Chinese consumer tech devices out of their market. Very good analysis there. And it feels really good to see in the comments, everyone sort of missing the show being back. I honestly, I, at one of these events I went to, uh, selfishly, was asked, what am I enjoying in VR right now? And I, I do think of this studio as like uh, one of my favorite things to do. And when I explain it to people, it sounds so simple, but like we have zero locomotion. So it would be by definition, one of the most comfortable experiences in VR. And then we spend, you know, an hour or two just diving into the stuff as deeply as possible. If it's missing in your, if your day out there as our viewers or our readers, it's a uh, missing in our day as well. Um, yeah, I'm obviously biased about this and not to toot my own horn, but I think what I like about this app, again, I'm the developer, so I would say this, but is the low friction. You know, there are many other apps you can do this kind of thing on, but we load into this experience in 10 seconds. There's no codes, there's no invites, there's no anything. I just open the app, click on the Geo Studio, and we're in here and everything's ready to go. That's why we use this and we'll probably continue to for quite a while until another piece of software not only has all this functionality, but has that really low friction. Yep, yep, yep. And we will get to some of this later in the show as we discuss exactly that, right? Like that is that is a significant thing. And honestly, two of our biggest stories today are this from, from two different fronts. But let's get into the next subject here before we get to those big ones. Quest Pro got local dimming for Link and a third-party tool will bring fovated rendering for some open XR games. This is obviously something you know intimately. Why don't you get into it, David? Yeah, so in the past few weeks, the Quest Pro has really significantly improved its prospects as a PC VR headset. So when you're connecting it to your PC to play Steam VR or Oculus Rift games via a link cable or via AirLink through your router or via VR AirBridge, that D-Link $100 adapter, you now get local dimming. And in case you're not aware what local dimming is, it essentially... Normal LCD screens like you'd see in the Quest 2 have a couple of backlights at most, and so they illuminate the entire display. But Quest Pro's displays actually have 500 backlighting regions. And so this local dimming allows them to use all those regions so that if the right side of your screen is supposed to be really dark and certain elements are dark, it can turn those backlights. So if you're using Link or AirLink, this will work. You now get that local dimming. So it's not all the way to OLED. On OLED, every single pixel is its own backlight. There is no backlight. Every single pixel can illuminate itself all the way from fully bright to fully dark. And that's why you get that incredible infinite contrast on OLED displays. The Quest Pro's display is an LCD. They are LCD displays, but with these mini LED backlights, these 500 backlight zones. And beforehand, you didn't get that on Link, so it would act as if it was one giant backlight, as if a normal LCD, which is obviously just, you know, a huge waste of a $1,000 or $1,500 product. And now you get that local dimming. Simultaneously, there is, as Ian mentioned, this third-party tool, OpenXR Toolkit, which has added support for foveated rendering. So in certain games like Flight Simulator, like Elite Dangerous, if you use Open Composite, another tool... There is a bit of manual work at work here. Uh, you can get that local dimming. And I obviously got this working in Elite Dangerous using Open Composite and OpenXR Toolkit. And it is incredible. You miss those true black colors 
that true darkness in something like Elite in space when you're using these LCD headsets like, you know, Index or Quest 2 or Reverb G2. But, you know, yes, it's not OLED. It's not OLED. This is about halfway between. I'd always describe this mini LED as a middle ground between LCD and OLED. Yeah, I saw a comment here from Thomas Ireland. Uh, Quest Pro or Quest Failure, as everyone calls it, is dead. Meta will release a high-end device next year. So uh, we've got some indications that that the next Quest Pro is probably not right around the corner, right? Yeah, if you've watched our show a few weeks ago, and you can look on the Upload VR website, if you actually go to the homepage and scroll down, you'll see it in the latest future tech section, the article we're talking about. There was a report from The Verge where they looked at Meta's roadmap and it appears that that next Quest Pro that was supposed to come in 2024 has actually been shelved in favor of a much more advanced model that is coming much later. So the Quest Pro may be around for quite a while. Although, as we've said on this show many times, as I will repeat, I don't think most people should buy one. And I think you should really just wait for Quest 3, which is coming out later this year, probably around October, because it will have a twice as powerful chip it will not have the eye and face tracking, so you won't get things like, uh, you know, foveated rendering. It will not, it will, well, it will probably not have local dimming, as in it will probably not be mini LED, although I have no information to say either way about that. So the features we're talking about here will not actually be available on Quest Pro, or on Quest 3, sorry. So it may turn out that if you're using primarily PC VR, the Quest Pro could actually be the net better headset for you. But then the Quest 3 is obviously going to have a lot better features when it comes to standalone. Obviously, Quest 3 is not out yet, and we only have very limited information. So that's all just mostly speculation for now. All just mostly, yeah. Uh, we, you know, it's funny. We don't, have, we don't have a discovered headset in the hallway yet to point to. But we do have a lot of uh, sort of hints as to what this device is going to be with that, that chip kind of like weighing on, our, on everyone's heads, uh, you know, like... Is, is that chip worth it? And you, we haven't seen what software can really take advantage of that, that new chipset. And I think once we see that, things are going aren't going to change in people's heads pretty quickly. Yeah, I think another prospect for PC VR is that Quest 3's chip may be able to do a lot higher bitrate compression. It may also support Wi-Fi 7. So when you combine those two things together... Uh, you know, we have a commenter here, Sherazad, asking why we can't get a, a native display port connection for PC headsets. Uh, I suspect because in the coming years, compression bit rates will get so high, the algorithms used, the codecs will get so good, and the Wi-Fi transfer speeds will be so fast that the vast majority of people simply won't want to. You'll get wireless that has, you know, 90 or 95% of the same image quality as wired. And I Almost everyone is going to take the wireless choice in that solution. Though, of course, there will always be a small subsection of enthusiasts who prefer wired, just as there always is for all technology types. But, you know, I'd point out that people in the past said that they would never use a wired console controller. There were many people who were adamant about that for the first years of the Xbox 360 and PS3. And when's the last time you saw someone use a, a wired console controller these days? Hello, Alucard from the Dominican Republic. I love seeing everyone telling us where they're tuning in from. It really brings home the power of VR to be able to broadcast from virtual reality on a global scale. Really, really cool. Are we ready to talk about Apple next? Yeah, let's talk about that Apple event. Yeah, so the Apple event is coming and 
all indications seem to be lining up that we're going to see the headset there. The reporting is turning into kind of a uh, fire, uh, lots of little hints here and there. I have hit up all my sources that have gone to Apple over the years to tell them to reach out to their PR representatives to tell them, you know, invite Upload VR to the event. You know, it's funny. I think about this a lot, Heaney, about our like size as an organization, right? We're, you know, VR isn't necessarily big enough to be on Apple's radar. AR is, but that's not, you know, like that doesn't say anything about what we do or the the quality of our reporting. And uh, if we don't actually get to go hands-on or see this first off, we'll still cover it just like everything else. So, uh, you know, like we're, we'll get to Apple coverage when we get to Apple coverage, though I would love to be in, in, in one of those first hands-on uh, moments to really see this device. But even if we don't, we'll cover all the apps and all the features as quickly as we possibly can. Um, yeah, we'll it's obviously been, purchase one. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, it's, I joked when we originally started hearing about the, the prices here that it's, it's getting close to a down payment on a house, how significant it is. And that's like we've, we've talked on and on about the sort of history of computing and the original first computers back in the first personal computers back in the 80s were up in that price range. Quite a big moment, right? Heard this rumored for years. And there is going to be a not insubstantial part of our audience who thinks that this is going to get pulled at the last minute and get sent off to the land of dead products. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people still don't even believe it's happening. We have, there are so many sources now saying that this is going to happen at WWDC. There are people who have even pulled out some of the pre-release code from iOS 17, and it's littered with references to new AR features and SDKs. Beyond any of the rest of the updates by far, it's the most significant. We have Bloomberg's Mark Gurman repeating his claim that this is going to be the star of the show at WWDC, which is in early June, in case anyone doesn't know, it's Apple's yearly developer conference. This headset has obviously been rumored for many, many years. And some of the reporting has indicated that that's because the entire product changed from being a thin client for a wireless console into a fully standalone headset. And that obviously delayed the project by years and years and years. And, you know, I, I understand the skepticism here. And I understand if you're sitting here right now thinking there is no such thing as an Apple headset. This is all nonsense. But, you know, we are, I would say we are probably pretty level-headed reporters. We aren't the kind of people that get caught up in crazy speculation based on, you know, a, a couple of disparate facts. And I think we are fairly confident to say that Apple at least plans to release a headset this year. And this does seem to be very real based on how many sources are reporting it. Uh, yeah, and I have no sourcing whatsoever. I've tried to ask. They all go silent. And awkwardly enough, I, I think I have to address this. Uh, I, I just started dating an Apple employee. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the fact that this is happening. But uh, I, uh, I have to bring that up because I met her first in your studio, David Heaney. And that is also very awkward. So uh, I'm going to put that out there with our audience that that happened. And that is a thing. If I write any articles about Apple, I will be noting that in the articles about Apple, I think. Uh, but <laughs> everyone is laughing out there. Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, important to disclose that. Uh, but um. Let's Ian just wanted to announce he had a girlfriend. That was it. There's no. Yeah, no, that was the whole reason. No, I think I had legitimate reason 
to uh to actually get into that right like i i feel like it was a uh, necessary we already talked yeah, about playstation something. vr2 yeah yeah that is something obviously to disclose jokes aside but yes let's let's discuss that playstation vr2 report probably the most controversial piece of vr news in the past few months there have been some extremely heated views and opinions and takes on this report yeah and i it was i'm gonna push back at you on the next one when we get to the active user base over quest but yeah we're talking about playstation vr 2's launch sales supposedly disappointing according to idc analysts and i've you know i'll let you explain this uh first and i've got my responses because i've been talking to various people in the industry about this very subject and i've been using your line about the soft launch right is is this a soft launch for the psvr2 and uh, are a lot of people getting it wrong out there about that? Yeah, I, I think so. So just for context, if anyone isn't aware of the story here, uh, this analyst firm, IDC, their sort of supply chain and market analysts have come up with this figure of PlayStation VR 2 selling less than 300,000 units in its launch month. And that's supposed to be uh, a lot shorter than what Sony was looking for. Sony was apparently looking for, you know, on the order of one to two million. and Again, this is all just being reported through Bloomberg, which IDC provided these apparent figures to. And IDC have sort of talked, called this disappointment in that Bloomberg article. And they've said, you know, this headset needs some sort of uh, imminent price cut to be successful. But as we've pointed out, the PlayStation VR 1 took uh, quite a few months to sell significant numbers of units. This headset is just launched. We don't have anywhere near enough information to know yet whether this headset is successful or not. It's going to take time. Uh, by all accounts, this is probably actually the fastest selling wired VR headset ever, as in, you know, a, a non standalone headset that tethers to some sort of console. And around that soft launch idea, you know, this is one of the only Sony playstation gaming major products that launched in the early part of the year almost all of the playstations in history with a very few exceptions have launched just before the holiday season to obviously you know maximize that launch window sales and people you know the hype is still fresh and it's coming up to christmas and other holidays where people give gifts um fargo soft is asking i thought two million was the product run for the first year no according to bloomberg's earlier report that two million units is what was produced for the launch window so again, that's all. None of this has been confirmed by Sony. Only thing Sony ever said about this was that they responded that they have not cut production numbers. They did not say anything about projections. They just said that they did not, or sales, they just said they did not cut production numbers in response to that. So that could mean a lot. But yeah, there are still plenty of PSVR games that haven't been ported over here. Skyrim VR, uh, Star Wars Squadron. Some of the biggest games haven't been ported over. Maybe they never will. It's to judge the performance of this product, we need to see how well it does this holiday season. We need to see what kind of games does Sony put out? Uh, how does it, how is it marketed? This product is still not actually even available in most retailers. You cannot go into a store in most countries and even buy this thing yet. And, you know, I do think that argument for a price cut is possible. I do think that this is overpriced. You can't. To the vast majority of PlayStation 5 owners, the idea of an accessory more expensive than the console itself is completely insane. If you ask the typical PS5 owner, will you buy this? Their first response is price. Go and ask some people who are outside the VR bubble, but would maybe be interested in what they think. And that's what they'll tell you. This headset 
is I don't think there's any strong reason to believe that this thing has to be five hundred and fifty dollars. I don't. I think Sony is probably making a healthy margin there, and I think over time, if they want to expand this market and make this a success, they probably will have to bring that down. But that's not unique to Sony. We saw earlier in the year Meta cut the Quest Pro from fifteen hundred to one thousand. The original Rift went from $800 with touch down to 350 over its lifestyle. It's not the end of the world if that have to happen. If Sony does have a price cut, it's not so, a failure. It would be a good thing. You know, uh, I'm going to throw out this this random idea I had while while you were chatting. I mean, like, would you ever think they would, they would take it all the way down to free with a uh, bundled with a PS5? No, that's You that's think that's insane. too much? I mean, it's it it does have a production cost and i know it has a production cost but i'm I'm talking about if you're investing in a platform you know we're talking about what uh what seven years ago or something that samsung was bundling gear vrs with with uh with phones uh why why wouldn't it's it's a phone is a thousand dollar device i mean i I know that's another 500 for the device but it's like uh, i guess i'm wondering how much does it like if it gets down to three hundred dollars that's bigger but it's still not the same as like we're investing in this as the future of the Sony uh, brand. Like I, I would, I would take that bet if you're going to move. Uh, like it's it's a different thing. Like Gear VR that failed. They they took it down to free, and that that thing still wasn't commonly used. I think the PSVR two is going to be more commonly used than that. Right, but the Gear VR was a plastic shell with some basic aspheric lenses and a gyroscope in it. You know, this is a full-fledged headset with dual HDR OLED panels, uh, eye tracking, vibration, con- two controllers with high-fidelity haptics. The, the, well, pr- the production cost of this thing is in the hundreds of dollars. Is is PS5 at the right time in its product cycle for a price cut for itself? Probably not at the, at the current moment. Okay. I don't think that's the limitation there. But the headset, I think, will have to come down quickly. I just think psychologically... It being higher than the console is a big barrier. If it's any, if it's even fifty or hundred dollars lower than the console, that completely changes what it is in people's minds. Uh, I think they could easily get this thing down to three hundred and fifty, and I think that's going to be the real sweet spot. You know, the real, obviously, the psychological changer that all of these companies go for. That's where Nintendo put the Switch, where Meta originally put the Quest Two, is three hundred dollars. When you get below two nine nine, is John Carmack has talked about this before. There is a fee shift in sales that is much greater than the cut would make you think. But I don't think with HDR OLED panels, we're going to get there. Yeah, so uh, I was thinking about my demo that I had. Uh, we don't typically get into gaming news too much on the show, and I don't typically write uh, gaming stuff too often because my interest is sort of the larger trends at play. Um, but I did try Firewall Ultra on PSVR 2, and that game took, huge advantage of the the displays to give you like areas where you really felt like you could hide in you really really feel like you're like really looking in the dark uh at these enemy teams coming at you um and then there was this feature that you and i uniquely sort of went and experienced at seagraph last year where we got to see the oled displays that are in the prototype phase research phase only out of meta, they produced, you know, one for research purposes, not a, a, a path to a consumer product. But we both sort of squinted, our eyes squinted, looking at a light directly into a virtual light that felt, it felt real because the brightness was so much higher 
than everything else on our displays. And conveying that to our audience who haven't actually seen an HDR display is, is a hard thing to, to get across. Well, in Firewall Ultra, they have this feature where uh, flashlights are super bright. And I'm, I'm holding this uh, gun that has a flashlight at the bottom. I'm looking down the barrel really dangerously, right? And the, they're using Unreal Engine 5, and I'm getting this light beam directly into my eyes that feels incredible. You know, it reminded me of what we saw last year. I know it's not the same dis- uh, display performance, but I was brought back to that moment uh, just a few months after we had it in the research phase. I felt like I had experienced some semblance of that on the PS5 system. And that's a team-based tactical shooter with deep, uh, deep, deep gameplay or tactics that you can play off uh, with, you know, a team of four. Um, it, that game looks like the first one in a multi-year plan from Sony to build out a library, right? They're investing in servers there and they want it to last three years with uh, a lot to build out. It, it, it looks like the beginning of a very long hard, uh, software story there. Yeah, I think as our article said in our headline, Sony is almost certainly only just getting started here. I think any idea that the PSVR 2 is dead or any of those sort of overreactions to this are just far too short term in their thinking. The, the original PSVR was not an overnight success. Sony had to actually build up a significant library before it really started to sell. The pace of sales started to build up after a year or two when, the, when that library was there. And critically, when the hardware was sold at significant discounts, you know, you, there were times where you had bundles with the headset and controllers for as low as 200 or $250 at some holiday sales. That's when you see a huge numbers of people buy in. The one thing I would say here is that I, while I think, you know, the PlayStation VR 2's HDR OLED displays deliver that incredible experience you're talking about. And to reply to our, our commenter shares it here, HDR is absolutely worth it for VR. I don't know if going for a high-end headset was the right approach, or at least only going for one. I wonder how would this platform fare in the long term if Sony had decided to, instead of making the best headset within this design constraint that they could make, if they designed to, if they taken a different approach and tried to make a headset that cost $200 or $250, and then over time you, you get this huge percentage of PlayStation 5 owners own it, you know, maybe over in the longer term, something like a quarter or a third, if you have it 200 or 250. Maybe that's something that could happen in the future. Maybe we could see a PSVR 2 Lite come out for those people. Uh, maybe you could also get a PSVR 2 Pro, but obviously that's, you know, a lot of hardware that Sony would have to then put out. Well, all right. So let me talk about the, the other element of that demo that was interesting. Uh, that was... That demo from Firewall, uh, I met uh, David Jagno. Uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, he was uh, he's the PR rep for First Contact uh, now, and I interviewed him, which was very weird uh, to do as well. Um, and uh, what he was talking about with us, with, with Firewall, was that they're using eye tracking for tactical purposes, more or less, is the way, the way I understood it where um, you can hypothetically close your eyes and avoid the effects of a flashbang grenade or avoid those effects of the flashlight being pointed right into your eyes. And it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, really cool new thing that they were doing where like the animation, the, like 
when the flashbang goes off, the software takes over and shows you a few seconds of stunned white screen where you could look around all you want, but all you're seeing is is being whited out. And that's like a powerful effect when you combine it with the HDR, right? So you've got this gameplay element that you can cover up your hands to block light, or you can simply, your eyes are quite literally the controller. And until you sort of play for a couple hours where you realize your eyes are actually influencing your, your gaming experience, it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, you won't grasp how important it is. Just seeing a comment here from Vexner. Uh, thank you so much for the $20 contribution. Vexner says, we have what most VR enthusiasts want. Eye tracking, face tracking, standalone full body tracking, head, sorry, hand and suit haptics, the size of big screen beyond the field of view of Pimax, Pimax and the pixel density of Vario. When will we get a full featured VR headset, even with crazy cost? So. That's a really interesting question. You're not going to get the size of big screen beyond with the field of view of Pimax, even at any price. There is no price for which you can purchase that because the display technology and optics simply do not exist today. You cannot get so, that field of view in a headset of that size. It's a fascinating question with that it covers so much ground. Um, the The way I would respond to it is we're due for, so, so Magic Leap, uh, two and uh, Magic Leap one have this external box, right? This external corded processor box to get as much weight off the head as possible. And you run the wire from your uh, side up to the headset. It's it's been standing alone as this startup company with you know making this particular design trade off, right? Like there's there's others, I guess, but they're not of the magnitude that Magic Leap is sort of going at it from. We've the latest rumors that we've heard about Apple are the the same thing, right? That they're going to potentially mm -hmm. do well. They're going to put the battery down there. Everything else is up yeah. there, right? Yeah. So yes, the close. rumors is the battery will be there. Well, yeah, it's close. Pretty different. So a similar split design, though. What I'm is what okay. I'm getting at. Okay. And so when we're looking at this question of all of these different things that everyone really wants, right? PPD, wide field, you know, wider field of view than we have today and super light like beyond when you do the split design you get more like sort of options for what to do with the headset is all i'm trying to say sure you you do in some ways but when you think about it the split design doesn't have to be in a puck like that if you have if it's the battery that you're doing you do do a quest pro did and you put the battery at the back or pico 4 in those situations you're doing you're saving every bit of design at the actual front box but you know getting wide field of view in a headset that is as tiny as big screen beyond is just a, it's a fundamental physics problem it's there are no optic display systems today that are, that are capable of it at all you have to either choose one for now the most we've seen in compact headsets is something like pico 4 where you know that's still significantly bigger than big screen beyond and you get something like a 105 degree field of view uh horizontal and vertical as to, for all those other features, it does sound like Pimax is trying to deliver those in their product. You know, they want to have everything you've said there, uh, except for, you know, hand and suit haptics and the size of beyond. But, you know, to answer the question, when will we get that? Probably I would say someone will do it in the later half of this decade. It does seem like there is enough advancement in the fundamental 
display technology and optics that it should be possible, but expect it to come even higher than the Apple headset, you know, something maybe five or $10,000. The, the, the highest end headset you can get today uh, is that Virgin Ears headset that is, the X-Tile 3, which gives you like a, a full human field of view. You literally, your entire field of view is encapsulated and a very high resolution, but it's still the same size as Pimax. It's absolutely enormous hammerhead headset, you know, and that is $10,000. So one thing I, I suppose I should reply to, uh, to Vexner's there is uh, what they're describing is it's pretty close to what HTC has put together with the XR Elite's ecosystem with the, the new self-tracking accessory. So, I mean, I, I did a demo with the trackers attached to my feet and played a, played a soccer game. And like, I, that's been technically possible for a very, very long time. But actually doing it in a, you know, the way I was with that much being wireless, was a, it still felt great. It still felt great to kick the soccer ball. But having that work at, uh, I don't know, the level to support a real consumer game community is 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 a, is another question separate to is there like experiential reasons to show this off for 30 minutes at a time in a location-based vr uh place but like i still want to point it out as pretty close to full body tracking with a slim visor setup and and all these other things that they're asking for there yeah so we do have plan to have an xr elite review next month but what I would say, the first thing I would say about XR Elite is I don't think it has the field of view that enthusiasts want. It still suffers from that fundamental problem of all of these ultra compact headsets, be it the Shift All Meganex, be it the Big Screen Beyond, be it the Vive Flow, be it the XR Elite. Nobody has yet figured out how to deliver a field of view that is even Quest Pro and Pico 4 level in a headset that small yet. And that's something that a lot of enthusiasts simply don't want to compromise on. Yeah, and it's 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 I went back and forth with this uh with big screen, right? I discussed this uh I've got basically a two hour recording. We'll get into it uh in a few more, uh where I, I was talking to uh the CEO over there about sort of this thing, right? Like everyone wants to be about the field of view of a quest, but getting you know, the enthusiasts out there, the people we like even not the enthusiast, it's like it really does feel like a large majority of the audience out there does not want to take a single step back, even by a degree, from where we are on like current Quest Two, Quest Pro yeah. stats. They want to they want it to go the other direction. Yeah, Quest Two is the minimum. I think Quest Two is the absolute minimum, and with Quest Pro, you get an extra five or ten degrees, and that, that's great. And with Pico Four, you do Pico Four and Quest Pro go in the right direction, and Field of view is fundamental to what VR is. It, you know, that is what really separates it from other display mediums. Yes, you have you know, the tracking and the controllers and you have the 3D aspect. But when it comes to what you're actually seeing in front of you, the reason you feel like you're in a virtual environment is because you are encapsulated by it in some sense. You're not just seeing a little square in front of you that shows you a little kind of peek through to a virtual world. You're in the virtual world. And every time I try headsets that expand the field of view, some of them have massive compromises to do that. You know, they distort the side of it. But the first time I tried that X-Tile 3 headset, which had this ultra-wide field of view without distortion, the first headset that I'm aware of that's actually achieved that, 
it was magical. It really felt like trying VR again. And the immersion and feeling of actually being in another place, the fundamental point of VR was just so much beyond any of these narrower headsets. So it's, it is such a disappointing reality that these are directly fighting engineering constraints. Getting headsets to be smaller is so important. So you don't want to rip them off your face because they're so uncomfortable. They're a big brick on your face. But getting headsets to be wider is what makes VR actually feel magical and what's important. So we're just stuck in this problem where these are two completely opposite uh, directions for now. Yeah. And I, I do want to say thank you to Vexner again for that uh, very nice donation. Thank you so much for supporting us. Thank you to everyone who is a member. Uh, those, uh, it means a lot becoming a member here and on our site. It really affects us uh, to, to know that we've got uh, fans out there willing to support the work we do. And Bexter, you just helped us. So thank you. Um, we're ready to talk about the Quest um, active players numbers, all these stats out there, because I'm ready to fight David Heaney about this. Yeah. Let's talk about right. that Wall Street Journal report. So... There was a Wall Street Journal report that had some stats that they were citing from uh, documents they viewed, saying the Quest had 6.37 million active players around October of last year, and Beat Saber had reached 255 million in revenue. Those are, are significant numbers. What, what context do you want to add to that before I fight you? Well, I'm curious what you want to fight me about it. Or what's the you're, you're, we're gonna all right? Here? Specifically, uh, we've got the rumor that uh, we're at 20 million quest uh, out there, right? And you frame that on Twitter as uh, a good a good number for retention. And I don't I don't know if I see it that way. I I didn't frame it as that. I said the reports of abysmal retention seem to be untrue. And you know, the, again, it's not a rumor. The Verge has cl claimed to have read Alex Heath from the Verge has claimed to have seen you know, an internal meeting where the head of VR at Meta has said 20 million. So if we believe Alex Heath is telling the truth, then yeah, there were 20 million Quest 1, Quest 2, and Quest Pro sold around almost 20 million. And of those, you have 6.37 million that were actively used in October. Uh, I think for what a VR headset is at this early, for the fact that Quest 2 does not come with a dock or a charging dock or anything like that, for, you know, I, I think that is fairly impressive. Yeah, I think if you took the percentage of PlayStation VR 1s that are currently in use, and I think if you took the percentage of any PC VR headset that's currently in use, it would be significantly below that. So kind of a cool comment from Guy Godin, the creator of Virtual Desktop, who I believe has Virtual Desktop running on Pico. So that's a, that's a dev yeah. who, who is, you know, spending a lot of time with the platform. And he's saying that he uh, looked inside of his Pico 4 controls and realized they were the same that came with the dev kit a year ago and they're still working. I don't use them every day or play long sessions, but that's kind of impressive. So a year of battery life is a, uh, yeah. Wow. Well, that, that's not what I've seen personally, but what I would say about controller battery is, you know, across Quest 2 and, and Pico 4, they're very, very impressive. But what actually drains it, in my experience, this is just for me, is vibration. So if you're playing games that use a lot of haptics, that's what actually seems to drain down the controllers. If you don't use haptics in any of the VR apps or games you're using, they, these controllers do seem to last infinitely. Oh, yeah. Uh, Guy saying that was 6 million after Bone Lab launched, which was the biggest game of the year. So they're taking a peak number potentially there. 
um, well, in that time. Why period. would the Wall Street Journal be trying to get a you know the highest number possible? It was a you know it, it, those seems, documents they viewed. A, how did they get the documents who got them to them? Um, but yeah, no, that's absolutely sure, these, point. This was like a we know Christmas Day is going to be context. a bigger peak number, right? Because of just yeah. the number of people opening that box. Yeah. So definitely not a probably an annual peak. But it is a good point yeah, that course. like, here's a big game launch and here's the big number associated with it. Like, it could give us I, an I indication of where Quest 3 is going to go this year, right? Yeah, but I, I, like, I, like you said, I don't buy that. If you wanted to inflate the number, you would give December's number. You would, you would give them, you know, December, you're going to have the maximum amount of people acting video on Christmas Day and playing throughout the Christmas holidays. This was also in a much wider document release. You know, there were this was only one of the figures given in this article that give many other details. And, you know, it was in many ways critical of Meta. It, it wasn't, I didn't see this as a Meta puff piece and I don't buy the idea that 6 million would have been the yearly peak. At all. Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't read it that way. I just, I, uh, I hate making too many assumptions out of single data points, right? And we, um, yeah, we need more. And we've worked, we've been, we've been going for the steam numbers, right? We've been taking years of like looking at those vague relative figures that they give us. And it, it it's so frustrating after all these years to still not have real usage numbers except for revenue, right? Like we know we, that the no, we, platform makes money. There is a usage number that everyone seems to have forgotten. And, you know, for me, this was one of the most significant pieces of VR news that ever came out. It was Rec Room said that they had 3 million monthly active VR users, and they said the vast majority of that was Quest. And that was, I think, two years ago, a year and a half ago. So, you know, we know that even this one platform, Rec Room, has 3 million VR active users, of which most are Quest. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me. It, you can look at this in a negative way and say, you know, around a third of Quests are in active use. Or you can look at it in a positive way and say, there are more than 5 million people actively using VR a market that, you know, standalone VR has only existed for less than four years now. It's a, a brand new market. These devices are still very early. They're still using, you know, uh, in many cases, the vast majority of them are using Fresnel lenses that make them 500 gram boxes on your face. You don't have a charger dock with Quest 2. So most people, when they're using this thing, they have to get it out, plug it in, charge it up, download all their updates and play. To, the fact that 6 million of people are doing that every month to me is actually a good thing. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how the meta product line sort of goes from here. I love the context you added earlier about the accessories of of having a charger built into the experience and how that can dramatically change. Um, and that's that's a good transition to talk about our next subject. Is there anything in the comments you want to get to first? Yeah, I'm just having a look at some of the comments here. Uh, yeah, the, the Hardy Gets confirming that the haptic controllers in PSVR 2 and Quest Pro kill the battery at the speed of light. So yeah, just another person confirming that is what kills those VR controllers. But on most platforms, you can actually turn down the intensity of vibrations. So, you know, if you're spare batteries or you don't want to buy batteries, just turn down the vibration. Yeah, so let's talk about John Carmack's vision for instant VR. So there was a podcast recently with Andrew Bosworth and John Carmack. So John Carmack was the former CTO of Oculus back in the day, and then he sort of transitioned into a an advisor, uh, guidance person, uh, advising the executives at Facebook and then Meta before he finally departed last year. And there's an hour-long podcast on Boz to the Future, that's Bosworth podcast, where he's he's being uh, sort of not antagonistic, but he's like pushing back at Bosworth on a, a variety of subjects. And if you're if you're looking 
for sort of insight in how these people think about the medium um, and, and what, you know, it, it almost seems to me like Bosworth is using this as a learning tool to uh, see what the community thinks, see what Carmack thinks, and uh, have that inform, inform what they're thinking going forward. And at least that's how I viewed it. But uh, are we ready? I think I'll, I'll try to play this clip here from the uh, podcast. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You just want to add the context, maybe you missed it, that Andrew Bosworth is the CTO of Meta. Yeah, so this is the person making sort of most or all of the long-term technical choices or at least recommendations directly to Zuckerberg on on what to do across the board. So uh, this is Carmack more or less pushing back on that person and saying, this is what I, I think should be the focus. The VR experience about how tedious it was to start or how much glitchiness there was there or the limited availability of the things you wanted to do. If that was on your phone, what would your phone be like if you had to set up an acknowledged guardian every time that you started it up? If you had to wait for your controllers to wake up before you could start doing inputs there. So getting to that point, not just light and cheap, but it should also be instant. You should just be able to like pull it up and put it on your head to just glance over there to look at something as easily as you would look at your watch. All right. So that was Carmack and probably the most interesting single comment from the whole podcast. But I do highly recommend going and having a listen to the whole thing because you can get a lot of insights there. And uh, yeah, it helped shape some of my thinking over the last uh, little while about this. Uh, what do you think about this, David? Yeah, I completely agree. Friction has always been the biggest barrier to VR use and be that in the hardware, like I was saying, the idea of having a charging dock that means the headset's always ready to go, or be it the software side, this, you know, you, you boot it up and as Carmack mentions, you have to confirm Guardian and in many cases on Quest 2, it'll forget your Guardian, so you have to redraw it all over again and you compare that to a phone and you just pick it up and you use it. But there's other devices you can compare it to that have similar friction. If I want to play my PlayStation 5, I just pick up the controller and, and press it and the TV turns on and I'm, I'm ready to go. And in that time, I'm not blindfolded. I have my phone beside me. So even if I do, you know, even if I'm so impatient that I don't want to wait the 10 seconds, I can sit and scroll on my phone while I'm waiting. It's the same thing for many laptops these days. Obviously, Windows laptops had the reputation for years of being, taking a long time to boot. But these days, be it a Chromebook or a Mac, or a modern Windows PC with a solid state drive, it's up and ready to go in a few seconds. Your television, you turn it on and it's ready to go. There's not, this VR has uniquely had all of these setup issues and friction issues, and it's made worse by the fact that you're blindfolded the entire time. So I think this will become a less, less of a problem when we have high quality mixed reality. When you put on the headset and you see the real world in front of you, high enough quality that you can use your phone even when you're in the headset, for now, yeah, this is what really needs to be pushed. But a long way, a lot of progress has been made here. We have to acknowledge that going from only being usable on a PC or PlayStation to being a standalone headset has massively reduced friction for in the first place. But, you know, it's, there's still a long way to go. And, and Carmack points out for people to want to use this headset daily, never mind monthly, like the statistics we were talking about, it has to just be put on and go. Yeah, people asking for clarity there. That's the Boz to the Future podcast. So it's B-O-Z to the Future. And that would be the latest episode with John Carmack getting into this subject. And I, yeah, I have to echo everything uh, David was just saying there about, about all of that. I do, I remember going back to 
the Oculus Go days and sitting down for an interview with one of the people in charge of Oculus Go and asking them, is this a communications device? Is this a phone? And the PR rep sort of shushed the, the, the actual uh, interviewee subject because it was, uh, they could tell it was like a, a question that uh, put Go in a box that it wasn't ready to fulfill yet. Right. It, it, and, and that's been true of all of VR across the board in the last Oculus or last connect event, uh, or one event before that there was a, a ringing doorbell that happened. And then someone walked into the room uh, to talk with, um, to talk with Mark Zuckerberg about something and VR should, in my mind, it should be that easy, right? It's, it's the equivalent of someone coming up to your front door knocking on it or ringing the doorbell. And you're choosing whether to like open the door or talk through the door at the person who's come to your door, um, you know, with whatever. And do we want advertisers coming to that door or do we want just our friends? Uh, how, how does that interaction work? None of it happens. None of it works until the headset is that instantaneous, right? This, this is a completely non-starter conversation until you can trust that the device is charged and as quickly as to use as your watch. Yeah, the one positive I would say here is that with Quest Pro over Quest 2, I've noticed that it remembers my Guardian boundary maybe 99% of the time. So I would expect that it's very likely that on Quest 3, we'll see that continue to improve. If you at least could have it always remember your Guardian boundary, that is an improvement. But there's still that moment of having to hit confirm that you would hope that over time it would become so reliable you wouldn't even need to use that. There's also just the downright sort of software loading time. One of the things I like about Pico's headset is that their system software is just so much better optimized than Meta's. It is snappy and fast, whereas if you bring up the, the Meta menu, the, the Quest menu in the middle of a typical VR game, your entire headset will come screeching to a halt and the frame rate will tank and that's just incredibly disappointing. That kind of thing kills friction because you know, you're know you in a game and someone invites you to another game and you have to wait not only for the you know invitation, but for the software to even display it, which is just crazy. But there are this is one of those things I think will die with a death of a thousand cuts. There will be no moment that VR friction gets solved. It will just be every year, progressively, the software gets better and the hardware gets faster to the point where this is all just snappy and instant. So yeah, so... Bosworth in particular has talked about a hockey stick moment. And for anyone that's, that's sort of, uh, catching up out there, um, it's this idea that if you chart out units sold or revenue or adoption of a new technology, there becomes a moment where everything accelerates really, really fast. And it, it almost happens in a very, very short amount of time where it was happening very, very slow before. And he was hinting or suggesting that Quest 2 was there. What we're seeing in this podcast is Carmack describe what's going to make that hockey stick. What, what's going to make it go more vertical, right? Uh, what's going to make that adoption and the amount of money just go through the roof? Uh, and it's, it's really hard for us to talk about this, right? It, it sounds like, hey, believe us now, we're, we're, we're telling you it's, it's really this happening this time. Uh, like, how do we write those those things? We're like, yeah, the VR debt is dead. People are idiots out there. But how do we how do we even that out with this is the time, really? Um, 
that that actually everything is going to going to snowball. Yeah, I think it is what you referred to earlier, those developer revenue numbers. If you talk to developers, the, they will anyone who has a game on the main Quest store, almost anyone, will tell you that the seals that they've seen on Quest have dwarfed the seals on every other platform combined. The success that they see from actual people actually buying their content and using it is just completely on a different scale to what it was with PC VSVR, what it was with uh, you know PlayStation VR 1, and even what it was with Quest 1. The difference between Quest 1 and Quest 2 from a sales perspective seems to be enormous. You know, we talk about that 20 million quests sold. From my understanding, the vast majority of that is Quest 2. Maybe something like 17 or 18 million of that 20 million is Quest 2. And so it'll be, you know, it'll be really fascinating to see uh, how that changes with Quest 3 and that rumored headset for 2024. But, you know, I don't think it's a crazy thing to say that Quest 2 is the first mainstream VR headset. It's not all the way mainstream. And, you know, mainstream isn't a binary. It's not either on or off but there are people you know people that i never thought would own a quest to own a quest to you know i was at a barber the other day and he starts telling me you know i tell him what i do and he says oh i have one of those oculus twos and you know just the the number of people that i've run into in real life in completely random context all over the country and all over the world that have a quest to it's it's clearly something that has gotten to a level that no other vr headset has gotten to and it's in the same realm as some consoles now you know like that fact that we often throw out that there are roughly as many quests sold out there as Xbox Series S and X. So either Xbox Series S and S is this dead niche or VR isn't. <laughs> I love the way uh I I love and hate the way you you logically break down things. It's uh it's the bane of my day when I have to fight you in DMs about your logic. Um I we're coming up to the uh one hour mark of our show and I think that's a good time to sort of take the uh the npr plea approach to our new membership program right uh please support us what we do become a upload vr member uh sustain and and support our work on an ongoing basis so that we can do more videos we can do more articles and we could uh forget what clicks mean i would love to forget what clicks mean um the reason i'm giving that pitch right now is we've got two more subjects to get into here i'll let Heaney get into the comments here, but these last two subjects are uh, big ones, right? These are these are long-term people who've been working in VR and AR, honestly, for decades at this point. And, you know, we went through the effort of meeting with these people, talking with them, trying to get what they're doing uh, out to our audience in in ways nobody else is in some cases. Uh, and and we would love to to see your support for the work. Share the link out for the VR download when we're live in the future. And and thank you so much for uh, all your support. The very last thing I'm going to say on instant VR, and I know I will not shut up about this. This will become my new thing. But Quest Three should come with a charging dock. If Meta is going to sell Quest Three for five hundred dollars, which it sounds like they will, it would be a huge mistake to not put a charging dock. I think that is from a hardware perspective the single most important thing for instant VR. The idea of being able to just pick up the headset at any time and go, just like you pick up a game console controller, is absolutely critical. And I think any company, any standalone headset company that doesn't include a charging dock is making a big mistake from now on. And I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to take it one step further and say that needs to be a carrying case right after it becomes a, a dock, right? Like I, I, That should be an accessory. But if you talk about what does it actually come with, 
I think, you know, the vast majority of headsets are going to be used within the CM home. Should there be a car charging case? Absolutely, yes. But I'm talking about what should be there in the box. Yeah, I get that. All right, so let's get into these last two subjects now. Tilt 5's AR teardown and their multiplayer demo. So I got to see this first at GDC when I did my first bit of travel. Uh, it was pretty cool. Um, pretty impressive on a couple of different layers uh, that I, I'm going to break down more on this show. Thank you, Richie. Uh, thank you for uh, support. $20 there from you. I uh, love the content. Thanks. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot. Um, so Tilt 5's AR teardown and multiplayer demo. Um, I'm going to show a video real quick here of Jerry Ellsworth, the CEO and founder of Tilt 5. We've got some videos on our channel giving pieces of her story. She's got a, a very storied history in hardware of all kinds, toys, computers, going back decades, um, and worked at Valve, uh, basically took her technology out of Valve, started a, co-founded a company, uh, started a company called Cast AR that tried a different bunch of different things, made some mistakes, ran out of money. She took the technology again and refined it again, and now that's what's shipping in the Tilt 5 AR device. I went to Tilt 5's offices after, basically got there late in the day on this travel, after I had this demo at GDC, and I talked to them at the time, and I said, hey, let's, let's go and see if we can stream or film something, and decided not to stream it live. I almost did it as a, a stand-in for the VR download, and I thought that would that would be too technically taxing to try to pull off. But what wasn't technically taxing to pull off, what didn't, what wasn't a problem was she, she turned on this software and both of our headsets showed us the augmented content, the virtual stuff in the exact same spot. I could point to a spot on the table. She could point to a spot on the table and it would be the same point on the table. And back at GDC, I was going around to all these booths. I was going to Meta's booth, and they had Demio set up with four players around a table. And there was maybe a uh, an offset of about this far on, uh, you know, let's say an inch or two inches from the avatar of a person that was supposed to be in my same space and their physical outline on the other side of the room. That was the level of sync up that they could do in like a production, a worst possible case scenario for your tracking situation. And there was an offset of just this much in, in the way they had set up these multiple guardians. We know that multiple people are trying to solve this. I did another demo that was done with the Snap AR platform. They brought over the Snap game and Snap has this cool feature where you point a phone at another phone at the QR code on the other phone. And that gets you into the same shared uh, multiplayer match. Apple has its own sort of shared anchor system. None of these things work reliably, effectively, or instantaneously. I have yet to see it work that way. It's, it's a nightmare. I think Apple's works pretty well. Well, uh, so I, the, the argument that I got at GDC was they were using Snap because Apple's wasn't performant uh, that way. I We'll see, right? It'll the, the the stuff will get worked out, and it'll get better, and then it'll it'll work. But what I want to point out is, like, out of the box, Tilt Five showed us this content at the same spot. There was no, there was no like it didn't feel like there was room for error on these two headsets, seeing the markers on the table, um, and and knowing where they are in three D space. It was fantastic, sort of, to have that light bulb moment of us both being able to go through this 3D model 
And that's why I showed this video. It was a, it was a surprising thing that, okay, so I gave that short little summary of the cast AR, so Valve to cast AR to Tilt 5 story. The lessons that I, I understand Ellsworth and Tilt 5 have learned is that previous products like cast AR tried to do too many things. They tried to put in a lot of features and promote a lot of features when it really should have focused in on being this great device for, for gamers and get that right first. And I think that's what Tilt 5 is trying to do right now. They're trying to prove that Tilt 5 can be a great device for gamers. They're trying to get the games on board. They're trying to get the funding to deliver. And uh, yeah, they're focusing on, on the single use case. But what I saw at GDC, this is a surprise that, hey, actually, if you just need to look at a 3D model with a couple other people around a table, this, this might actually have some business use case. And at the same time that I say that, Tilt 5 doesn't want to promote that because of what happened in, in the past. So it's an interesting sort of situation. At the same time, I also did a little demo that was super early, but uh, Jerry Ellsworth did plug the Tilt 5 glasses into an Android phone. I put the glasses on my head. I walked from one table that was out in front of me, walked into another room where the, she had another table with a different like reflective board size. And after it, you know, it was beta software, it was barely functional, but it did pop up. I got the, I got the visual experience of what I was doing on the other table over on this other table. And I was walking from one room to another with just a wired phone in my hand and a, and an unobstructed view of my surroundings. Like this is entirely different than viewing the world through the mixed reality of a Quest Pro or or uh, any other VR headset, right? I'm seeing uh, transparently the environment around me and then I'm walking over to a table where it's then presenting content. So there's, again, another potential use case. We're talking a year or two down the road of software development where you could hypothetically, uh, you could hypothetically go to like a museum and plug the glasses into a phone that you rent out and walk from exhibit to exhibit and see different things at each exhibit. So there's, again, they don't want to promote or talk about this too much, but it feels like there is a route for them. Yeah, and I, again, I don't want to be the pessimist here, but I think that's probably the best route in the end of the day for this technology. As our commenter here, uh, Jack B. points out, uh, the, the Tilt 5 problem is going to be getting content and games you know, uh, they, sorry, uh, Knuckles904 was the commenter that pointed out, they said the hardware and software is cool and they want Tilt 5 to succeed, but they need killer content to get there and they're too small to get larger devs to add support. This comes down to the, the, the fundamental equation in all of these gaming platforms. If you want developers to target a gaming platform, there needs to be a large number of people who own that. And I think the price of Tilt 5, I've said this every time Tilt 5 comes up, but to me, it is still just that barrier. The price is just far too high. To, for a family kit, it's you know nearly, it's close to $1,000 to get enough for a family. And that's just never going to be a mass market successful product. If they could sell this exact same technology for $250, this would be a stocking filler. This would be probably one of the biggest gaming and you know family entertainment night gifts in the entire country. This would be a massively successful product, but it's more than triple that. And at that price, I think they're probably better off going for those kind of museum and business use cases that you pointed out because that 
instantaneous automatic co-location is incredibly important for that and has huge potential. But you know, you're always trying to get Demio until five. You you know, it's your big campaign. But I don't know if you've got any response from the developer. But well, all right, he, all right. So let's go there. Let's go there. All right. So I was at GDC, and Resolution had its booth up uh, where they were showing off Spatial Ops. Right, Resolution Games is. Probably the biggest VR developer, one of the biggest VR developers. They're 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 firing on all cylinders with new content all the time. Um, and Spatial Ops is true magic, right? It is it is a really really great idea, and I cannot wait to see uh, what comes of the Spatial Ops mixed reality game. Um, and I'll maybe I'll describe that a little bit because it relates to this the sync up thing that I'm talking about a little bit being a, a problem for VR. Um, about on, on, on the other end of the show floor, across the way from Resolution Games, there was the Tilt 5 booth. And I was going over there to meet them, and then I was going over to the Resolution booth. And I, I come back to the Resolution booth, and I'm talking to their PR representative, and then the CEO comes over uh, and talks to me. And I'm just telling anyone who'll listen, this needs Demio. Like, uh, and, and one of the uh, people from Resolution Games asked me how much Tilt 5 was paying me to say that. And I said, nothing, zero. That's why I feel com- comfortable saying that. And that's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, they did buy me dinner uh, when, I was at, uh, when I was at their studio about a week and a half later. So I'm guilty of that, but it is covered in our ethics statement that we accept food. Uh, in our, so, you know, I, I haven't done anything wrong there. I, I got paid in, a, in, in food about a week and a half after I said that. Uh, to resolution games um it's a business decision right between resolution games and tilt five whether this thing gets you know whether it happens uh it's a fit technically on a technical level it's the right game that fits the right platform tilt five probably needs it more than demio needs it right yes. so like that's you know again business decision tilt five needs it more all that's true all i want to get across in you know Admitting my uh, my free food uh, guilt, right? Uh, thank you for the for the food. That was uh, a wonderful discussion while we ate it. Um, it's it's absolutely like it's really tough to see so much money thrown at really really bad ideas, right? It's and I and this, I'm not alone in in sort of looking at this this situation. Over at GDC, there was a booth. It was the starkest, cleanest, uh, brightest booth of the whole GDC conference with, you know, fixtures to the ceiling and there's nobody inside. It was a blockchain booth, right? It had life is game written on the side of the booth. What the hell does life is game mean? It means absolutely nothing. Holy crap. It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Um, and it, it's this gigantic booth at GDC. How much did they pay for that booth space? What was the cost of that? And uh, how much, you know, is that relative to what Tilt 5 can raise? What I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is like, if you're going to fund a project to go and get the games to make the platform worth it, Tilt 5 seems like the right sort of platform to fund with that push. If you're looking for a project to fund into a place where it can subsidize its hardware to make that investment in its platform for the future, again, Tilt 5 seems like the kind of thing to do it, but it just seems like other things get uh, 
get funding. And uh, I would be very curious to see what happens to Tilt 5 over the next year. Yeah, I think those sort of crypto uh, projects like that are, are really the exception, though. You know, the vast majority of things are not going to get money like that for no valid reason. And, you know, you, you said there, interestingly, it's a business decision between resolution and Tilt 5. But it's, it's not really. It's a business decision solely for resolution. And when you port a multiplayer game to a platform, you're not only saying that you're going to port it today, you're telling people that you're going to support it with all your future updates. So that now becomes an extra platform that they develop for with every single update. And the overall cost in manpower and, uh, sorry, person power and money that is there is just, you know, that's just not viable. The platform has to have many more people on it. And, you know, it would be great to see Tilt 5 somehow get a hardware subsidization. But, you know, unfortunately in the world we live in, the only real path to that would be if they were acquired by a tech megacorp, and I don't think that sounds like what Jerry Ellsworth would want to be doing anytime well, soon. Well, I mean, well, let's, many let's see if Nintendo shows up. I saw a couple of people uh, in the comments mention Nintendo. Uh, if uh, someone from Nintendo shows up and says, "I want to, I want Tilt Five on my on my wall," I think she'll go head up AR for Tilt Five, but or uh, yeah, for, for Nintendo. A, but we'll. That's a, that's a great point. It feels like it really could be a Nintendo style product. It feels exactly like what their take on. Kind of VR AR would be is something. Yeah, like Jerry, Jerry Ellsworth's head of AR for Nintendo. That's the future I want. I am a proponent of that. I will take free meals and campaign for that across the country. Uh, yeah. So, I, it's, it's, I really still want to know that question that I haven't heard an answer to. Of you know, is Tilt 5's technology fundamentally expensive, or is it just that you know, with low volume and early adopters, it's expensive and they can in future. I want to see what is the price of Tilt 5 to, or, you know, I, I, I'm sure they'll call it so, that, whatever the successor is, that's the big question. I would love to sit you down with Jerry Ellsworth, right, and get into the technical, get into that discussion, get, you know, throw those questions at her. Because, like, the, the demo I did with her was, was uh, like, it would be really cool to see you get into the technical layer while also putting those questions to her. Because she, she's, she's got thoughts and uh, very, you know, she's thought about this a really long time. Like, she is... One of these people who is investing in the long haul vision of of AR as this huge platform, and uh, going back to all like I, I, all the context you were saying about multiplayer services being such an extraordinary thing to kind of maintain, as we found with Echo VR going offline, right? Uh, I get it. Um, it's still there's it still feels like there's a little niche there in the idea that you could have four people around the same table if you can bundle that into like a like a like a starting point for a certain number of games that don't need to have like external server or remote support i think we're ready to move on to the final subject unless there's any comments yeah. you want to get to yeah we're uh we're solely in now that you know i've actually switched back to quest 2 for this podcast because the quest pro microphone is just uh it's just not great and people have been requesting it so i've actually been using quest 2 today and that means my headset almost ran out of battery the reason i'd go during Tub 5 was to find a charger and plug it in. So that's All right, why I so, left you on your own so, muted. So field of view and battery. We've just done a live demonstration of field of view and battery and how it limits uh, social interaction in VR. You know, I the idea that Quest 2, or the idea when Quest Pro launched, a lot of people seemed to believe that it had a, a, a worse battery life than Quest 2. I can tell you from this show, that is absolutely not the case. I, the Quest Pro, I can get an hour and a half or two hours into this show and there still be maybe 30 or 40%, sometimes somehow 50% left in the battery because we're not using the face and eye tracking here. 
when you're not using the face and eye tracking, the Quest Pro lasts significantly longer than Quest 2. So I just want that on the record. Yeah, so let's move on to big screen beyond. Uh, are you able to pull up an image for that? No, it has to be me, right? It has still, to be you, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to pull up a, that yeah, right so this I'll, minute. Should I explain to our audience? So, you know, it's ironically, we're talking about production value at the start, but because we've actually moved our, onto our new website, our studio software here communicates with the old website to try and find images. So we're going to have to write an update for this software that will connect to our new website's image library. So for now, that's why we have not images. We really apologize for that. We would love to be able to show you images of what we're talking about, and we will as soon as possible. Yeah, we've. Uh, he just built the website, got us the website online. Uh, it's magnificent. I can't wait to to be able to do some of these things in the studio again. Um, but yeah, so I can't show up the the images of how small it is right now. Do go read our article. It's near the the, the top of the uploadvr.com homepage. Um, when I was heading to GDC, I basically stopped off at Big Screen's offices in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles area, and made an appointment with uh them to see big screen beyond um i talked to darshan uh the ceo there founder who's been in this for a decade he's been in there a, a very very long time honing in on social multiplayer vr um on this idea we've got Guy godin who is uh more or less been indirectly competing with big screen for years uh, not you know the same products, not the same market, but they're still doing some of the same ideas. Um, and about three years ago now, he hit a wall. It seemed in how far he could take a business that was trying to sell movies uh, or movie tickets in VR because Meta was not going to sort of uh, be flexible in the amount of money they take per in-app purchase and uh it it is a pain point for vr overall that you can't easily buy a ticket and have five people go to you know go see the same thing just last week we or we just reported on uh peacock coming to the quest platform and we made sure to put that question to meta when other reporters didn't saying is this solo viewing or is this co-watching? And they had to say, no, this is this is solo viewing. So yeah, you can go and watch Peacock on your VR headset, but you can't share it in the same way you could if you were watching it on your phone with another person sitting next to you. And yet they described it as Peacock comes to the metaverse. Yes, the right. That was standing difference between the engineering and the marketing there. And 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 it's 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 recurring in our audience. So our audience is picking up on this problem where before it was like social VR was the terminology. Now they've used metaverse as like a equivalent term for it, and it's not being applied to social VR. Right? It's like it's it's a mis misunderstanding of how all this works, and it's it's really really stupid. All right, so that's the landscape in which big screen builds the beyond. VR headset, right? That's they they're realizing that to take uh the home theater experience further, they need to build their own hardware. And I've been talking with them for quite a long time waiting for this demo. And I, I basically outlined, I don't know, six months or a year ago, I said, 
I want to go in there and see all of Dune in as close to a finished version of your headset as possible. And that's going to be my, my trial by fire uh, assessment of, of how Big Screen Beyond works. Uh, I did that, right? I went to LA uh, at the beginning of my GDC trip, put this uh, headset on my head, and I didn't come out of it until the movie was over. I took the headset off once to hit start on a recording, and then at the end, I, I hit stop again on the recording. So that was the only time the, the, the glasses ever came off off my head um you should you go to read my write-up on on this if you want to see my breakdown of the individual optics and the like kind of drawbacks if, if david wants me to get into them a little bit i can right now but what i want to talk about is the moment this headset comes off my face right at the end of this uh two hour time in vr that we're going to be done with my face is with i'm wearing a quest pro uh, got a cool balanced design, right? I'm going to pull it off my head and I'm going to feel achy. I'm going to feel like a sense of relief. I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel relieved to get out of virtual reality because of this weight on my head. I brought Big Screen Beyond off of my head after the two hours and I did not have that feeling. What I did have was a weird, I felt like my eyes had a tough time focusing back on my surroundings. I took me a good two minutes to feel like my eyes had blinked back to uh, being okay um, with with what was going on, like just normal vision. Uh, he said he, uh, big screen said they looked uh, at the device and saw what was wrong. There was a there was a dip problem with the, the focal distance. Uh, he said on on the device that I tried that it was a pre production device from December. Um, they're still taking pre-orders. They're uh, shipping, uh, I think, out in some numbers to some people. Uh, but they're still fine-tuning uh, a lot of this. So uh, what I, you know, we, we need to get a finished, full review device to David yeah. Heaney. Uh, and that's going to be the ultimate assessment of this. And I, that's how I kind of left it with big screen. I said to them, okay, look. You gave me what I, you gave me, I've done this with a couple, uh, a couple VRAR companies over the years. This is my expectation. My expectation is that I'm going to go into big screen or, uh, and, and watch all of Dune and I'm going to come out and I'm going to feel different. And I did that. That was my expectation. Big screen met that. I, there's a completely different experience versus taking off any other headset and taking off a big screen beyond. Um, the way I left it was next time I do this, next time I put this thing on my head, I need to come out of it and not feel that bad feeling I had with my eyes. My eyes cannot do that after I come out. And if they can do that, uh, you know, they've got an incredible product, uh, like doing something different than any other headset. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's my, assessment of of where that is uh do you have any questions that you want to get into in particular here the first question i was going to give is you know you, you compare it to quest pro and a lot of people will compare it to quest 2 but i feel like there's a big gulf all the way down to big screen beyond that you know 129 grams i think it is and you know quest pro and quest 2 at 500 and 600 and 700 grams what about something like vive xr elite i know you haven't tried pico 4 that's the comparison i really love but how much 
more of a relief taking it all or how much uh how much more comfortable was it than the vive xr elite which is obviously a lot more yeah. compact than a quest 2 or quest pro well i didn't I, I haven't been able to give vive xr elite that length of time right two hours and see how that compares um there were other things that i i noted in my review um that or not my review my my hands-on impressions i noted in that write-up that uh this device, but beyond in particular, is custom fitted. They're they're like they've done so much to remove so much weight, just under under two hundred grams, and like way less than that, just in the visor, right? Um, they've done everything they can to just remove all of this, and what they've put in place of all that stuff getting ripped out is we're going to custom fit this specifically for your face. So I sent them a 3D scan of my face from iOS, and I even got my interpupillary distance measured at a doctor's office to see exactly what the doctor says my 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 vision is. And what I learned from that the second time I've ever you know gone to an eye doctor uh, was that my interpupillary I knew this previously, but I've got the actual numbers down. Uh, my interpupillary distance, if you go from the middle of my face to my eyes, the numbers aren't equal. My my eye distance is asymmetrical. So I'm not talking about too many of the negatives I saw on the optics here because I don't know if it was because this custom-fitted device is not made for an asymmetrical IPD. Yeah. Um, and it's something, you know, if you go, if you've got your IPD and, you know, it's uh, 33 and 33 on either side of the middle point, you're... you're big screen beyond experience could be quite a bit different from mine so we're having three commenters here point out the issue i've actually run into so far which is uh this requirement to have an iphone to scan your face and order it you know in some countries the the vast majority of people have an iphone namely the us but there are a lot of countries where iphone's market share isn't anywhere near significant and you know i've been so busy myself in the past few weeks that i haven't even had a chance to borrow a friend's iphone and uh, use it and you're know, having a few people in the comments say things like that greg snell saying they'd have to steal their neighbor's iphone but it might be worth it so you know that is obviously a big limitation it's not i guess it's not big screen's fault and that the iphone is the only uh device that has that kind of um face depth sensor uh but you know it, you'd think there would be some kind of alternative there at least that perhaps there is some android app to use computer vision or something or uh it's a very unfortunate situation uh, to say the least. Let's see. Uh, sure, so I just gave us a donation of $5. Thank you so much. Big screen states that it can't run full resolution at 90 hertz, even with DisplayPort. It uses a scaling solution. Um, so I, I, I don't know if uh, anyone from big screen is here to respond to that technical note. Uh, I, I, was, I approached this whole demo specifically through the, the lens I, I'm describing here, right? I wanted to see if this thing felt different. It felt different. And I, like I, I worded it vaguely in my article because I can't remember finishing a whole movie in VR, period. And I, but I had to word it vaguely in my story because like, it's possible that I did at some point and just forgot about it. But every, every device I've ever used, um, I did, I can't make it the whole movie. I made it the whole movie and I didn't feel bad in the same way every other headset feels bad. So we have Darshan in the comments uh, talking about 
uh, that comment claiming that it doesn't run at full resolution at $5. And he's pointing out that, you know, that's not actually accurate. Darshan being the CEO of Big Screen, they're saying the headset always runs at the full resolution of 2560 by 2560 per eye. Uh, the, the compression that's being referred to there is not like a, a simple upscaling. It's actually the display port uh, compression that's used on a lot of other devices. And as far as I understand, Darshan can correct me, it's essentially lossless or near lossless. So you shouldn't really see any uh, significant impact there to image quality at 90 hertz. Yeah, and uh, to be clear, so there was there was various things I did when I was testing this demo. I mean, I, I'm going to visualize it here as being about this this big. And what I did was I took, uh, I think I had an index controller, and I compared, I brought it over to the size of the, the headset. And like the tracking surface of the controller is larger than the tracking service surface of this super slim headset. So like other things that we hadn't even thought about, like occlusion or the number of base stations you might want in a room to really get you into an active game could change based on like how, how you use this. Um, it's still like, uh, so I, I, I did this, uh, demonstration with, with him on video. Uh, I drank coffee, I drank cold water and I, I, I laughed as I thought of this on the spot, right? It feels like a, a cold cup glass of water on a hot day. Like that's the difference of this weight loss. Uh, and I, I understand all the, the people being concerned there about all the other things. Wired is dead to me for this reason. Um, it doesn't have included uh, audio output. It has microphones, as uh, Darshan was very clear about. It's got built-in microphones, doesn't have built-in output, even though you can you know, use an accessory to get audio output. Again, they've, they've removed as much weight as humanly possible. Like I, I think about, I use the AirPods Max for the audio experience here, right? I'll get headaches just from hear, uh, headphones, right? Any, any amount of hats, right? Like any amount of weight, I talked about this in the article, any amount of weight on your head is poison. It makes you uncomfortable and hate it. And it takes the serious like design skill in order to like make it comfortable on a wide range of of heads uh and what we're seeing here is a big big bet from big screen that custom fitting the device is an area of of benefit like it's an area if they go hard on that here maybe they can uh route into the market and uh, that question from a don from a donation earlier in the show uh sort of alluded to something i brought up in my story that Vario out there went and pushed resolution as far as they could. Pimax went and tried to push field of view as far as they could. And here's big screen trying to prove that a, a, a theatrical movie theater experience can exceed most, you know, home theater experiences, if not wider than home theater experiences. Yeah, and proving something more widely about the future of VR and that, you know, it is possible to build a headset that is comfortable enough to wear all day is something we've talked about on this podcast so much. These future potential use cases of VR that include, you you know, using a virtual monitor setup as a replacement for your physical monitors. And the real limitation to that 
resolution is going to be solved. We all know that's going to be solved. There's, I don't think anyone doubts that over time, the march of technology will get resolution to a point where that's viable. But there's a lot of people who doubt that a headset could ever actually be comfortable enough. And big screen is out there proving that that is not true, that it actually is possible to build a headset that is as comfortable as headphones, or as you say, even more comfortable than headphones. And so, you know, obviously this is itself is a niche product. This is a thousand dollar headset that requires a gaming PC and $300 of base stations, you know, or at minimum $150 base station to run. This is not something that is in any way mass market, but it doesn't have to be. It's proving out a point. Uh, it's proving out that one day headsets will be both. One set, one day there will be headsets that are wireless, standalone, and this size. And maybe it will require a puck. Maybe it will be that, you know, the wire that goes to it is just going down to your pocket or even some sort of neck brace or even, you know, for a gaming context, a room skill gaming context, maybe it's just a pad on the back of your head. But it is possible and eventually it will get there. And, you know, I still think there's a lot of room for headsets that are comfortable enough for one, two, three, four hours that are, you know, a lot bigger and, and heavier than big screen, but also a lot cheaper. And I think this is going to be another one of those gradual things over time. It's not like a headset needs to be this weight to be usable, but it needs to be a lot lighter than a Quest 2 or a Quest Pro. Those headsets, we just know they are so heavy that even after 30 minutes, a lot of people are going to get uncomfortable. And big screen has proved you can get something that you can do eight hours and not be comfortable. Yeah, so he specifically talked about that in our interview, that his target is is 10 hours. Uh, that That... Because it means that you're spending longer than the workday and you're, you're using it for other purposes a little bit too. And he thinks that for a certain segment, you know, that small segment of buyers, they're not targeting a billion users was something he said. Uh, they're going to maybe get some of those people to the 10 hour day mark, those people who are yeah. the very front line of, of VR. And I could totally see that. And I'm think people ask about uh, tracking pucks and, I, I'm gonna have we're gonna have to get into the state the state of tracking pucks soon because there's the whole new generation of inside out tracking pucks competing with this sort of tried and true generation that is useful to a very small audience but they're perhaps some of VR's most engaged users. Yeah, but regardless, the you know I do kind of laugh at this idea that people are talking about strapping a, a tracking puck to the top of this headset. The entire point of this headset is to be as light as possible. The tracking puck weighs about as much as the headset itself. You're going to double the weight of the lightest headset ever just to... And, it, and it's got the same VR tracking sensors built in. Yeah, so exactly. It's, like, it's, it's not <laughs> a... Just buy a base station for the same price. <laughs> just yeah. Buy one base station, you know? But so I, And I did, at the end of the demo, I did try a few minutes of Half-Life Alex. Uh, the, and again, I just want to convey like this this balanced view and Darshan is completely uh, upfront and, and sort of he's in our comments right here uh, communicating with you all. So if you have any questions, uh, get them to him. Uh, this is not like, you know, this is an enthusiast's VR headset, uh, right? Like this was built by an enthusiast uh, who's been at this and believing in it for a very long time. And uh, it's in the same way that we were talking about Tilt 5 and what they're doing. Like that's an enthusiast product uh, for AR. These are people who have been there doing things parallel to Meta this whole time. And, and, and Meta gets so much press because of their investment scale. We, we really want to shine a light on what these, these other companies are doing while being 
completely cognizant of of exactly where they are. Um, and yeah, I want to just reiterate: next time, if I come out of Beyond without that feeling that I had of of my eyes focusing, it's they've they've got a great great thing there. That was my that was my reservation uh, after trying it. The headset I'm really interested to compare this to in the longer term isn't anything from Meta, but Apple. I really wonder to what extent is this movie watching, co-watching, uh, virtual monitors usage going to be something that Apple focuses on? And will Apple be able to match the rumors that they will actually be able to do this with a wide field of view, you know, OLED micro displays with a 120 degree field of view? Where will that balance come along? How comfortable will the Apple headset be? How many hours will I stay in the Apple headset compared to the big screen beyond? And, you know, to what extent is the value proposition there? You know, what if, if big screen beyond is a thousand dollars and Apple headset is three thousand dollars? How does that all factor in? Especially given the fact that, you know, the Apple headset will be standalone and may have these other mixed reality capabilities. That will be a real fascinating one there. And, uh, I think, yeah, that may end up being big screen's biggest competitor. Yeah. I, I appreciated the, 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 it's interesting that you, contextualize it there with Apple. Um, I am, I've been using, trying to use SharePlay and when it works, it's magic. It, it, it is really cool. And I've, uh, had fights with Kyle on previous shows over this thing. Uh, you can go down the list of things like karaoke, uh, of shared activities that if you have access if both of you, both of the people in VR have access to the same music library, the same licenses, you could have a lot of like emergent activities uh, occur and they don't have to be exclusive to the headsets, right? You could have them on other devices with people who, who are in headsets. But uh, I want to bring this a little bit circle back to Meta, right? And the Peacock situation there, right? Meta is going through a transitional period right now where all indications are that they're laying off another huge round of people. And they've had to make long-term product choices about which headsets they're going to build beyond the new Quest 3 that we expect this year. We don't expect them to get to a Quest Pro 2 for some time. Well, we've heard rumors of another device that could follow up Quest 3 pretty, pretty quickly and still be in the low end of the area. And coming back to this previous discussion of what if like, what are the benefits of disconnecting so much of the weight from your headset and having it be in a, a pack on your side? Uh, I wonder if Meta is is revisiting or thinking about some of those some of those things when we get to the this next device. So, you know, just to be clear, when you say uh, come after Quest or you, we're talking about something that would reportedly be sold alongside it at a lower price as you know a Quest Lite or something like that. The the key to understand is that. That separation that you see in Magic Leap 2 and reportedly in Apple actually costs more. That's something that is very unlikely to, to arrive in any low-end device. Being able to send that much data in power, uh, not having the chip be directly beside the displays, all of that adds quite extraordinary cost. Even doing the split design of having the battery in the rear like Quest Pro adds cost. And uh, I remember... Uh, hearing that a lot of the cost in HoloLens or, you know, not, not a, a big cost factor in HoloLens was the fact that they had their compute in the rear and they pipe it through to the front. So maybe will the Quest Pro 2 have something like that? 
That's a really interesting question. But I think, well, the low end is still going to be everything is in your face. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Okay, so I get that. I think what I what I wanted to convey or think about is what from this this demo might a bigger player try to steal, uh, more or less, right? Like what, 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 what could they learn themselves from this particular test? Um, I do want to say thank you to Darshan for coming to our comments and engaging with our readers. We, we love, uh, the quality of our discussion. It's what we're doing here. Again, thank you so much to our members and everyone who's supporting us. Um, Darshan saying here about the minimum spec, I used beyond for two years on a 20, a 3080 TI. And I was very happy with it. Only Microsoft Flight Simulator was a struggle on that particular hardware for um, for Beyond. Um, back to the the thing I was saying about what other headset makers could learn here. Uh, I do, you know, fitness is is the thing we always come back to, and I want to see this lightness on a fitness device too. Like I, yeah, I think it would be such a great great matchup. I guess is where I'm I going can. with that. I do want to push back on learn here. You know, I think this is an, a, a really interesting device, but it's not like there's some kind of fundamental tech, tech breakthrough in here. You know, all of these big companies will have a device like this in a prototype somewhere. It's, you know, pancake lenses and micro uh, OLED micro displays. That is what makes this possible. It is the combination of pancake lenses, OLED micro displays, and a custom fit. Will big players take that idea of a custom fit? The problem is obviously it doesn't scale. You know, a big player they all care about whether it scales or not. Even the idea of having to restrict it to only iPhones is something that no big player will ever ever do, except for Apple, of course. Uh, so there's there's two ways you could view my my IPD situation here with 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 what I've found with Big Screen Beyond. You could you could view it as like um, a mark against Big Screen, or you could view it as them saying. Uh, we actually need to go even deeper and harder into this this vein. Your your comment, like I get the custom fitting, it's expensive, but we're talking about your perception of your surroundings, and you're talking about affecting it for ten hours a day. This is a prescription level at least device, and I, I I think all you say all the big players probably have these devices in a in a lab, um. I, 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 it seemed like you took a little too much away from the fact the big screen is out there in the front trying to prove a point. Like you're, well, you're saying yeah, that everyone else didn't publicly. ship this for a reason. Well, I'm, I'm saying that there are many of these big players clearly from what we know from supply chain sources plan to ship headsets that use OLED micro displays and pancake lenses, you know, but. This is something, you know, Apple is reportedly doing the same with a, a different balance of where they, you know, have the, the lens field of view and the OLED micro displays. I'm just oh, saying that like... Dar Darshan is in our comments said, has anyone else shipping a 28 PPD micro OLED based headset? No, but you didn't, you didn't say, is anyone else doing this? You said, will these big companies learn from it? It's not about, you know, I'm not saying that they're not, they're not doing this. They are doing this. They're out there doing it and they're shipping it and they are the first. I'm not taking any of that away from them. I'm just saying... It's not like any big company is going to go, oh, wow, we never thought of this, OLED micro displays and pancake lenses. It's, it's been, again, this is, I'm sure this is an engineering marvel. I'm not taking away from big screen. I'm just saying on a, on a, on a bigger level, this is not something unexpected. This is OLED, the idea of combining OLED micro displays and pancake lenses has been talked about in VR as the obvious sort of final step or at least next step 
since 2017 or earlier. You know, this is something sure. that is, this is. Well, the, I mean, Vera Folka, we can go down the list of all the different things yeah. that have been like explored just, in headset designs. And the only one that's making it is this, is this self-contained all in one, everything on your head brick. And I, and I think it's the, the, what I, yeah, it proved a point. The device proved a point. You even said it in your own words, right? This did prove a point about headset weight. And I appreciated your like context. How does it compare to Vive XR Elite? I, and I want to bring it back to something Darshan has, is totally upfront about. I'm using the Quest Pro. We complained about the field of view even on this device earlier, right? Affecting my ability to even like look at something that's right here when I'm looking over here. Um, edge to edge clarity on a Quest Pro, like it is crisp over here at the edges of my field of view. It's crisp right here at the uh, at the center space where they meet. It's crisp up here. It's crisp down here. Big screen beyond is a step backwards from that. I I'm I'm pointing my eyes around this device right now instead of like moving my head to focus my my whole head on these these clear spots um what i'm you know meta has invested billions in developing this optical stack of clarity and going back to like your what you were saying like if they can combine that with some of the lightness out of beyond then then they've got like a huge competitive problem for beyond the question is can you know can beyond get enough uh enough here to keep going to the next you know next stage from the signs of it it's going to be years until meta releases another quest pro and i think it's pretty much certain that the next quest pro will use oled micro displays and pancake lenses that you know the, the original current quest pro already uses pancake lenses but combines them with these sort of traditional lcd displays of i think they're like two and a half inches with uh, LED, uh, mini LED backlighting, right? So they're obviously huge displays compared to what's used in something like a Beyond. But you know, just to come back at something, I think there's a slight misunderstanding here as to the advantage of custom fitting. It's not that it improves your visual experience more than an adjustable headset, because if an adjustable headset has eye tracking, you can adjust it to that exact same adjustment than the custom fit. The advantage is that you don't need all of that adjustment mechanism so you can make the headset as small as possible. The custom fitting is the magic in big screen. It's the fact that they can do that and make it smaller. And that's why, you know, I think it's incredible as a niche product. And I'm definitely going to be getting one myself, obviously. And I'm, I'm, you know, plenty of VR enthusiasts I know love this idea that you can get rid of all this weight and bulk by custom fitting, but it's not going to scale. That doesn't scale. You can't build a custom fit product that is pushed out there for, you know, 300 to $500 for the Christmas season. And that's fine. It's okay. Not every company has to make a mass market product, but the big players do. And that's the only reason I'm saying I don't think they're going to look at this particularly. I want to make sure I'm contextualizing what you said right. Like you're saying that it doesn't scale. What I'm, what I'm trying to convey is that Apple has the scale and maybe Google has the scale to, to build some of these things at potentially a loss. Like it, it could cost them more to add these things over time then they get it. But like if, if someone's going to, like it, it, it could be a, a brick wall. It could stop big screen, I guess, is I think what we're, what I'm at least alluding to, that like a uh, big screen might have to expend huge amounts of money to keep doing this approach in future designs. Whereas a company like Apple 
that's pocket change to them to do the same thing. Well, it's not even like the cost. It physically manufacturing it. You could not manufacture a product for tens of millions of people like that you're custom fitting down to the exact millimeter for their optics. It's just, I don't think that's viable. That's just not something that can be done in mass production. Imagine that every time you ordered a PlayStation 5, they had to build the controller to exactly your hand shape, you know, and they, they actually changed how wide they made the controller and how deep and how where they placed the buttons to custom fit your hand. Would it be great? Yes. Could you actually produce, you know, 40 million PlayStation 5s at, at the same sort of speed that Sony wants to sell them? Of course not. I, I, I get, I get that premise. I think I'm just saying we're, the watch and the AirPods are, are like our, our first clothing that's, that's really fully computerized. And we can debate all we want about whether you can get AR out of, out of those things. But clothing, like you do have multiple bud sizes that come in some of the headphone jacks. You do have these little things that try to make it better. You've got multiple watch sizes for multiple wrist yeah. angles. I get like there's certain places to make those make those choices. I guess what I'm just, I, yeah, I'm wanting to convey that like, it seems like there's a path over the next decade to just build that out more and more and more so that it really is, we do arrive back at where we are today with big screen. That's something I really do think we could see. Um, Onikazi puts it here, three sizes fit all. I could definitely see a headset from a big player in the next five to 10 years being sold in three sizes, you know, for, for your interpupillary distance. You have small, medium, and wide. And if you have lenses that have a large enough eye box, and maybe even they can be adjusted ever so slightly off their pivot so that you have a, a very compact and uh, low weight adjustment mechanism that doesn't actually move the lenses through the entire range of IPDs, just a tiny little bit. So you adjust it to your exact IPD on a tiny little pivot. That's something that we could definitely see. It's something that I think Palmer Lucky was trying to publicly argue for in the in the years that Meta was, or that Facebook at the time was producing these fixed IPD headsets like uh, Go and Rift S, he was saying, why not at least produce multiple sizes? That's something that can happen. 100%. You can produce, as you say, the Apple Watch is producing multiple sizes. Uh, you know, the iPhone's producing multiple sizes, tablets. It's just when you start to get to, you know, producing something to the exact sub millimeter position that it just gets unscalable. But yeah, I wonder if that's something we could see the big players pick up on different sizes. Minority report spiders. That's all I'm saying. I don't, I don't remember. I don't can't figure out what that's referencing, but I do know what he's talking about. Like they, that's just, that's just a memorable image. Um, there was one. Uh, oh yeah, I have a little drone come visit you and scan your face. That's what that's what the the spiders are for. Um, <laughs> but I like Wabo's comment here. Watch sizes are not anywhere near as specific and impactful as millimeters for your eyes. And I yeah. That big screen, that was that was part of what big screen proved to me. That was was that difference is fairly dramatic in this this wide eye box thing that others are um kind of like focusing on as their their trade off there. It I can't wait to see what this other approach arrives at um over time. For sure. It could also be something for AR glasses. Maybe there's ways to build AR glasses that are more viable that can arrive and give wide field of view by just having a tiny eye box and just saying we're gonna literally build these things to precision for your eyes and and you know, screw the eye box, we'll just 
make something that doesn't care about iBox. Yep. Well, I want to say thank you again to all of our members, uh, both on YouTube and our site. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for our support. I think we've seen more money given to us uh, directly in this show than I've ever seen before. It means it truly means a lot to us. Uh, support our journalism, support journalists everywhere. Uh, make sure. Uh, yeah, it's we're going through a transitional time in technology, unlike unlike any I've seen uh, between the, the the combination of AI changes that are that are happening on a daily basis, as well as that hockey sticking effect that's happening with VR right as we speak. And we are doing our best to stay in front of that for everyone in our audience and beyond. Uh, you know, you as our supporters, our readers are going to go out there and inform a lot of your friends and family about how this all works, what's good about it, what's bad. And we want to be on that journey with you. So thank you so much. Anything you want to get into? I'm just trying to figure out if you're using the word beyond as frequently as possible in the show on purpose. I think you, you uh, use I, it I have beyond. Am I, am I, yeah. oh, he, he didn't pay me for food though. I didn't get, I guess I got coffee and water. Um, but I didn't get a free meal, uh, unfortunately from, so like, I guess I'm not, I guess my ad rate is, um, not, I've got, got, I got to come up with some consistency here and in, in how many calories per, per, um, mention that we're going to come up with. So Subliminal <laughs> advertising. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you the, so much the last to our audience out there. This has been great to get back at it. Thank you so much, Heaney for the incredible studio that you've got here, as well as the incredible writing space that you've made and uh, this new place for our audience to interact with us. Um, really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Anything and the else? last thing I was going to say is I'm just very excited to get the a final unit of Big Screen Beyond to review. I'm, I'm not interested in reviewing pre-production prototypes or anything like that. I don't, I don't review non-final units. I, when I, I want the final hardware. And that's what I'm going to review. And I will give you as detailed as technical impressions as I can. But yeah, it's extremely exciting device that's solving one of the biggest problems in VR. And I can't wait to review the final version. Yep, 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 yep. Please uh, get this to us as soon as you can, Darshan. Uh, and uh, he will we'll get his face scan to you. First. <laughs> yeah, right. As soon as he yeah. gets his uh, iPhone face scan, which is uh, sacrilegious, right? Uh, that was one of the things I, I, I learned at Seagraph, right? You only get OLED phones from Android that you can turn off the whole brightness and not use any battery power. That's that's how hardcore you are on your uh, your Android OLED love, right? Yeah, well, all the all the modern iPhones are OLED now too. It's uh, okay. it's, it's it's more just a personal preference at this point. I'm not a fanboy of either. I the thing I would say, but if we're going to talk about the smartphone wars, is I think they are far more similar than they are different. They the convergence of Android and iOS over the past decade has been pretty crazy. They are almost the same device. Let's be real. Well, uh, yes, is legally sideloading is right at the cusp of like making that the same across uh, across the entire board. Um, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the future. I'm seeing some some Spock fingers out there, but I still cannot do the Spock fingers. So uh, brutal, brutal meta. Come on, I got to be able to do Spock fing- fingers. I Live know. long and prosper. We'll see you in the future. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. And yes, we will try to make this show weekly again now that we have the new website shipped. Thanks so much.